Hello everyone and welcome to today's podcast which is part two of the observership program. So part one, Sasha and I discussed the observership program, the format, um, how it works, cost and basically our thoughts on it, whether it was worth it or not. If you haven't listened to that, go ahead and listen to that first. There's a link in the caption. Um, Part two, we actually have someone, a very special guest, Dr. Faraz, who completed an observership program and we wanted you guys to hear from somebody who's actually done the program because both Sasha and I haven't. My name's Dr. Caroline and I'm from Koju Australia where we help people revive, survive and thrive in their medical career. Hello, Dr. Fraz. Welcome to another podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm getting used to this now. Yeah. <laughs> you loved it so much you had to come back. Absolutely. <laughs> so in today's podcast, we're going to talk about the observership program. Um, you did an observ- observership program in what year? I did mine uh, in 2019. So started in February mm-hmm. and uh, it ended in May. May okay, and um, were you living in Australia at the time? No, so I was actually here on a tourist visa when I'd applied for the observership. It was also when, uh, when I was on a tourist visa, and uh, I was quite stressed and worried about it initially because I thought I'm working in a hospital. Does this count as anything I shouldn't be doing on uh, legally? Is this something I should declare to the immigration department? And then I later realized that there was nothing wrong about it because yeah. uh, it is it is study um, technically. You are not being paid for it. That's right. It's volunteer work. If you decided not to come to um, the hospital every single day after paying whatever money you've paid to the hospital, they're not going to bat an eye. No, absolutely No one's going not. to care about no, it. No, you've got, paid up the, the, you've yeah, paid the money. You've paid they the money. Care. They don't care whether you're there or not. So yeah. it's, you're not liable for anything. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's the majority, uh, majority of uh, people who come on tourist visa have that condition on there that says no work, study for maximum of three months. Yeah. So you're ticking both the boxes. You're not working. It's volunteer work and you're allowed to do volunteer work as per laws. And uh, this is technically study because you're studying mm. the Australian healthcare system yeah. by observing. So you're not doing really any hands-on things. I mean, you're doing a bit of procedures, but that is also that's allowed. Yep. And uh, so it's not beyond the realms of uh, legalities. I think that's important to note um, because, as I mentioned in part one of our Observership Program podcast with Sasha, is that the rules of entry to the observership program or even the structure and the cost is going to vary from hospital to hospital. So not all hospitals have an observership program, um, but if they do have one, they decide like how long it goes for, what rotations you go into um, and the cost of it. But also some might say like it's not open to people that live outside of Australia. This was particularly true when COVID hit, they wouldn't allow applicants um, from abroad. And only reason being is that if they gave them a spot and then the borders were shut, it was a spot wasted and obviously that means they lost a bit of money. But now that the borders are open, the international borders are open, more of them are opening it up to international applicants. But dare I say that some might still have that rule. So that's just really important for people to know. No, you're 100% right. And when I started, there was no COVID. So it was a different story then. But um, I was also one of the only applicants who was there on a tourist visa. Um, because the hospital that I did it in, they they do a program for about uh, 13 weeks. And each time they take in a group of people, it's a cohort of four doctors, four IMGs. And um, I was the only one who had a tourist visa. Everybody else were either residents or citizens. And so when you did the observership program, what was, do you remember what the criteria like that you could apply for it was, what they asked? When I did it, it was, uh, it was a bit ad hoc because the hospital, when I started doing the observership program, wasn't really as streamlined as it is now. Yeah. Um, we've had some really wonderful people come in, make it better. But um, back then it was quite... Uh, it was just run the way anyone wanted to run it. Mm-hmm. So, But basically what they needed of me was 
my CV, my AMC MCQ pass certificate, um, and uh, they wanted me to do an interview with the director. Yeah. Did you need your English test? Uh, they said if I could have it in case they ended up giving me a job. Okay. Yes, said it would be good if I had it, but it wasn't a mandatory. Okay. Now I know for a fact it's a mandatory. Okay. Because um, we mentioned this in part one of the podcast, but basically the way we look at applicants for the observership program, are they work ready? So that they've got the AMC one, they've got their English test and it's still valid. Um, and that if we were to give them a job at the end of the program, they're ready to work. They don't go, oh, well, I have to sit my English test and, you know, I might do that in the next few months. So it essentially has become a little tactic to make it a hiring pool. Fair enough. And uh, I, it does, uh, um, I, I don't think that's completely unreasonable because if you're applying to a hospital for an observership or and or a job, well, if you're applying to a hospital for an observership, my advice would be to apply to one as if you're applying to a job. And just like you, just like you said, having an English uh, exam ready with you is one step closer to be able to working. Yeah. The other thing is like you want, you want a hospital that has an observership program that treats it like a hiring pool because that means you've got a chance of getting a job. There are some observership programs around the country where they're at, they're, they run at hospitals that barely have any IMGs there. And we've mentioned this as a strategy in part one that you need to choose the hospital that has more than 50% of their junior doctors are IMGs because they desperately need you. So if they're treating the observership like a hiring pool, that's actually a good thing. That's a good sign because they desperately need some way of hiring IMGs. Did you, well, obviously at the time, did you know about this? Uh, I knew from uh, previous observers that uh, at the end of it all, uh, you get an interview. Some of them had said that you have to strive to get an interview. So I was getting a bit of mixed messages mm. whether we get one or not. And I was too scared to actually go up and ask if I would get an interview. So when I started, the aim was to be good enough to actually score myself an interview rather than knowing that no matter what happened, I would get an interview at the end, which I think worked in my favor because I, I just I worked a bit harder than I would have if I'd known that regardless of what I did, I'd get an interview anyway. Mm. I think it just makes you a bit slack if you know that, oh, yeah, this is going to come my way. But um, things here in Australia don't work just like just quite that way. It's not no. about having uh, one good day or one bad day. Yes, if you, you know, if you if your interview is absolutely horrid, then you don't get a job. Yeah. But um it's it's a cumulative approach to everything and yep. anything and everything, regardless of observership, work, your life, whatever happens here is uh, a compilation of everything. Yep, that is so true. Um, so you did the observership program and what rotations did you get put in? So <clears throat> they told us that because it was a 12-week program, they said that uh, there's four weeks well there are three weeks of medicine three weeks of uh, surgery and three weeks of ed just to get an idea of the basic medical departments and uh, at the end they said uh, maybe we might do three weeks of uh, rehab or we might see if there's anything that you wanted to do so i ended up getting a bit more of uh, medicine anyway so mm. that was, uh, i got rehab apart from just medicine so it wasn't too bad I but the basic idea was that you get an idea about a medical rotation, a surgical one, and ED. Mm -hmm. And like I mentioned to you, when I did it, it was a bit haphazard. Mm. So I did one week of my medicine in one department, which was rehab. I did two weeks as an after hours observer, and then I did one week on uh, a medical ward. So it was just all over the place. And then for my surgical rotation, I did uh, two weeks of urology and they wanted me to do orthopedics for one week. Uh, but because I was already starting to get a bit of uh, familiarity with the, with the urology department, I decided that I might do one more week and the RMO actually wanted me to. And here is what I did as an extra tip. 
so after about two weeks Aramo had finally started to you know remember my name <laughs> and knew that I was always going to be there because I was always there on time I was always going to be there so and anything that he asked me to do I'd do it yeah I, this is where I learned to break my shackles of being the most socially anxious and awkward human being I would not know how to speak out I would not know how to do anything so when I got to my surgical rotation which was my first rotation and then I went to ED and medicine afterwards um sorry uh, yes so when I went to surgery they they asked me one fine day it was in the first week of my observer they asked me do you know how to put an IDC for people who don't know what an IDC is it's just another name for Foley's catheter that they use here in Australia so they asked me if I could put an IDC in and it had been eons since I'd mm. actually put one in so I, I the last time that I did was in med school that I assisted a, a, a doctor and that would have been maybe five six years ago but I and it was a split second answer I had to give yes or no that was all I had I, I could think of and I don't know why my mind decided that there is in that half a second there were so many thoughts in my head and mm-hmm. I thought to myself that right I can either say no and go back to being the way I was or I can say yes and challenge myself and uh, see what comes out of it so I looked at them and I said yeah sure uh, I haven't done one for a while but um, if you're there to guide me, more than happy to give it a go. Yeah. So I think that is what is the most important thing here. That is so true. You have to be a yes man, woman. Um, de- yeah, definitely with a condition. Yes, You have absolutely. to be a yes person, but not um, do something unsafe. So yeah. I that's what I used to say as well. I'll go, yes, I can, but it's been a while. But look, I, if you come with me, and um, observe me and guide me or we, or you, you do one, I watch you and then I can do the next one and you watch me. Love to do that way. And they were like, yep, no worries. And that's how I did most of my skills. Absolutely. And uh, the RMO who I was with was a little skeptical because, you know, it, it is a Foley's catheter and some of the patients there have issues with their urinary tract and you don't obviously want to damage it mm. and he would be answerable to the registrar who would be answerable to the consultant so he said how about you just watch me do this You're and like, uh, <laughs> and the next one that comes in you can assist me in doing it so I'm like all right cool that worked in my favor yeah and uh, that's really how it has to be you've just got to say I'll give it a go yeah I'm happy to try. I haven't done one, but I'm happy to try. But do you think you could just watch over me or just assist me in doing it? And I'll I'll do it. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Yeah. Okay. And as soon as this worked in my favor, I realized that maybe I can start doing the same thing for everything else. Yeah. There was a patient who was uh, similar, again, on urology. there was uh, we have we used to have something called grand rounds on there mm. the consultants came and said uh, this these bladder issues seem a bit neurological do a neuro exam full neuro exam on him and see how he's doing uh, if there's any particular issues so we finished our ward round and i told the armo can i and i was uh, they were distributing work amongst themselves the armo and the intern and i again thought to myself right i can let this opportunity go once again and I turned to the RMO and I said, do you mind if I do the CNS examination? And he's like, sure, if you want to. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm more than happy to. Please let me. So they went about doing their jobs. I have absolutely no idea how to do a CNS examination. Oh my God. So I pulled out my phone. Geeky medics. Got to get geeky medics. 100%. Uh because someone had told me to buy that app. Yeah. And I it's bought like it. It's like $20 a year. It, exactly. And, and it, it is the best $20 it is you'll the, spend. Yeah, it's the best. Tw- so it goes through everything, like lots of skills, um, even interpretation of results. And it's it's an, it's Australian. So it's yes, our way. So and, definitely get And they that. actually do follow a lot of, even for your physical examination, they follow a lot of your tally O'Connor. Mm. So it's... You're covered. Even you don't even have to read those books. You can just do geeky medics, and you're fine. So I pulled out my phone. The patient wasn't going to rat on me, so I just left it on the on his table over there, mm. and I just followed everything step by step. 
and I took back a five-page neuro report to my registrar with eliciting everything that I'd done at every single dermatome, which was a bit excessive. But I'm like, well, you know, this is the time to be excessive. Yeah. And he saw that. And believe it or not, he was so impressed with it. He actually went up to his registrar. And the next uh, morning when the consultant called him, he told that this observer actually has done the most detailed CNS examination I've seen. And there is a bit of discrepancy because there's a bit of power loss on one side, but tone loss on the other. We did an MRI, turned out poor chap had MS, but that's a different story. But it's just that the fact that they were so appreciative that mm. I did. We had initiative. Yes, that's yeah. what, and that's a very, very big thing about Australian doctors in general, local doctors here, is that they love somebody who takes initiative. They love somebody who wants to learn. Mm. And um, more often than not, and I won't say this about every single registrar I worked with, but more often than not, if you are keen, then they're always happy to help, almost always happy to help you. Yeah, that's the thing about IMGs because um, they tend to, what, what more likely tends to happen is they go into a unit or a team and they're yes people, but they're not yes people with initiative or being proactive. They're like, just stand there and try not to like ruffle any feathers and let essentially the internal, the resident, dictate jobs to them like they're being managed um and that's never good like what you did was you're a yes man but you're gonna have initiative and you're gonna put your hand up for something and then if you're gonna do it you're gonna do it well and you're gonna come back with the good information that's the difference um but you don't see that you see quite the opposite where they're like if I just stand here and do as I'm told then I'm actually doing a good job because I'm not upsetting anyone but it's quite the opposite yeah absolutely uh, and I, after I learned that, I was, I decided that, okay, time to take initiative uh, and learn rather than just like how you mentioned, Caroline, about not being unsafe. The most important thing is that you've got to, you've got to be safe while you're taking initiative. Like if they ask me to, I don't know, put a bronchoscope down someone's throat, I wouldn't say, yes, sure, I'll be happy to try. I'd probably say I, I'd really like to see how you're doing it uh, because I've never done this before. Honesty, mm. there's nothing wrong with that. If they had asked me to do something appalling like that, I would have said I've never done it before. Can I watch you do it once Yeah. Um, so I can learn and maybe try it the next time? Yeah. Or if you tell me what to do, I'll follow your instructions. Yeah, because you don't want to be caught out lying and you don't want to be um, deemed the IMG that does unsafe things. Absolutely. Yeah. So... The next thing that I did was I had a uh, I had a couple of weeks in AMU, which is uh, the acute medical unit, and uh, not just AMU. Almost every ward has this, but AMU had a blood nurse that used to uh, that used to come at seven o'clock in the morning, and I wasn't supposed to start until eight o'clock. So I thought to myself, I haven't done instrumentation for a while, and I certainly haven't done anything in Australia, so this might just be the option. So what I did was for a couple of days. I went to work at seven o'clock and I asked the blood nurse over there or the phlebotomy nurse that can I try and do a couple of bloods for you and trust me they will be ecstatic if you ask them that because you're taking a bit of load workload yeah. off of their um, entire list of people so I, I did a couple of them the first one I did I failed it's it put me back but uh, I, I thought to myself for the next 10 minutes, I can just sit here and focus on the fact that I've completely fopped this and not try and touch another butterfly in my life or I can just pick up another one and I will just cherry pick. So I went around and looked at a patient who had good veins and I said, all right, I need a confidence booster. So I went to the blood nurse, asked if this patient needed bloods. Coincidentally, they did. And I got bloods from them and that was... That was it. I just mm. needed that win for the day. So again, went out of the... This was this is not a doctor's job. You know, I was not supposed to come in early to do this. I was not supposed to come in to do this as an observer. But I thought to myself, if I don't do this, then what is really the point of spending money in towards something yeah. where you're not doing anything different from anyone else? That's so important what you just said because in part one of this podcast we I did mention that I do see IMGs that go to these observership 
programs and they just stand there like shadows when you can't really rely on the residents or the consultants or the registrars to really take you under their wing and guide you you've got to make your own objectives list and go in there and try to learn as much as you can and like exactly what you did you saw that the blood nurse comes at seven you put two and two together and you're like right i'll just come in earlier and i will help um and that's how you get everything that's how you get your money's worth for the observership program Uh, you're right and you know if I eventually I did uh, just going a bit forward. Eventually I did get the job, but then had I not gotten the job, or at that point I I, I used to think to myself, right, the worst case scenario is I don't get the job, but I'm going away with so much experience here mm. that I can use this to brag in any interview that I get f- going forward in 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 Australia. They ask me, have you done anything? I can say, yes, I've worked for three months in a hospital as an observer and I've done this, 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 this. And I can say with absolute certainty that you give me any patient to cannulate or to take bloods from, I'm confident I can do that. And you actually put this on your CV and list the skills that you completed um, in your observership. So this is something you should highlight. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you there, Caroline, because I... um, I did actually mention every single thing that was done in my observership, which was very helpful because, uh, I mean, it would have been, I, su- I suppose, if I were in a different, going to a different hospital. Mm. But it just highlights uh, that you've done something. Yeah. And uh, if you've done it in an Australian hospital, what happens is that if you're applying for a job elsewhere and they try to corroborate this from your previous hospital, they know that you're not going to lie about anything because yeah. obviously we, we're not here to do that. But they always have a, a very easy way of finding out whether you did it or not. Yeah. So yeah. if you've put it down on your CV, that means you've done it. And any hospital in Australia can ask this hospital whether you've actually done it. And they'd all get the same answer that you have. So it's, um, you're not, you're, yes, you are losing a bit of money. I will agree if you don't get the job. But I think that, there is definitely something else also that you get from it. And that is the abundance of exposure to Australian healthcare system, which you would not get working at any GP practice. You would not get working at a nursing home. You would not get working as an assistant in nursing. It's a completely different ball game. Yeah. Um, The other question I was going to ask, well, it's more of a statement, but just for the listeners to note that some hospitals might say you're not allowed to do any procedures. So that's really important is to just check with the individual hospital that runs that program because they're all different. Um, now, I did talk about this in part one where you will come across people who are just like, oh, another observer and not give you the time of day because they're busy, they're overworked. Did you come across any of those people? Funny you should say that because when I went to AMU, um, I was paired with an intern. And as soon as I went and spoke to him, he said, I'll just be back, bolted out the door, ran to the clinical support <laughs> officer and told her, I do not want any responsibility. Yeah. And um, it could just be that maybe he was a bit intimidated that, you know, I'd come from a different country. And he was, I, I don't think it was his fault. He'd been a doctor for two weeks. Yeah. Okay. Um, some of them are a bit nasty. Yeah. He was very nice to me. It wasn't like he was, uh, you know, he tried to ignore me because there were a couple of shifts I got inevitably paired with him. But uh, I could see that he genuinely was just, he just felt that, you know, and often a lot of us, when we come from uh, from overseas, we've got at least a couple of years of experience under our belt, right? Mm. And he was under this impression that I probably had worked for much more longer and just felt really scared that well, how am I going to teach an experienced doctor when I don't know anything? Yeah. So I understood his anxiety, but the way he reacted was a little off-putting because he didn't know that underneath whatever he was seeing, I was I was more anxious than he was. Yeah. There's always a little bit of um, emotional maturity lacking, like that, you know, EQ. Um, and that's just an age thing. I definitely had it. There's no judgment. I definitely probably had it when I was their age as well. Um, but you know, you do get come across people that are like, I don't get paid extra for this. And that is such a, you know, that is a fair statement. So some might not be receptive to you. What would you say to the people that do get those? How do you work around it? Well, see, 
usually when something like this happens you've got a very preset hierarchy or you've got a supervisor that you report to i would say that rather than trying to um get into arguments or trying to justify uh that it's their job or trying to get more out of them if you see that they're not being receptive and you're on a short time period there okay and this uh, often observerships are you know limited in time and obviously a lot of money that you're spending so i would recommend not wasting any time like you yes you give it a try and if you see that they're not receptive just go talk to your supervisor and tell them that uh, i think they're just a bit uh, they're just feeling a bit uncomfortable with extra responsibility mm. um do you think that i should be continuing over there or do you recommend that i go to a different department yeah. when you say that you're still willing to consider working with a difficult person they will guilt they will they will find themselves in guilt and try and get you to change that experience because at the end of the day if they don't give you a job they still don't want you to go outside and telling everybody that oh i got harassed by some other doctor in the hospital yeah. because that ruins their reputation so they'll help you yeah cuz essentially the observership program is a bit of a business you know? yeah absolutely um so um was there a rotation that you absolutely loved out of all those or you thought was so helpful and definitely definitely worthwhile um i'd say my urology and amu rotations were very helpful because urology was the first time i'd been to uh, a theater an uh, ot for the first time in an australian hospital mm. so there was that bit there that i got to enjoy and it was not something that i'd done before back at home so that's why i just needed to that was really enjoyable for me and the second one was amu because mm-hmm. i got a lot of my instrumentation skills back and the last rotation that i had done after that was ed and by the time i went to ed i was pretty good with uh, knowing what the instruments are called like even if i didn't do anything uh, at amu uh, with the instruments before taking blood i just open the drawer and just stand there and look at every single uh, instrument there just and read a little bit about what they're called at the back just so that if someone tells me go grab a green tube and if i don't know what that looks mm-hmm. like or means or where it's kept then it just makes me look a bit silly so i i just didn't want anything uh to come back to me so it sounds like you're always a couple steps ahead yes that's basically yeah. how you had to be because unfortunately as bad as it sounds and i know people try to be a bit more helpful with their uh with their cohort of um observers they do make it seem like it's a bit of a competition mm. not in a bad way but you know it's just you everybody is trying to look out for themselves and yeah. i'm not saying this i'm not asking you to be selfish or put anyone down you be the best at your own work that you do yeah and not bother about anyone else so i and i would give this exact same advice i've i've i'll be very honest honest to god that i've given this exact same advice to the other three observers as well mm. if i went through a rotation and they followed after me i'd say right go do this because i found out that this is something that you can do and uh, there would be nothing better than all four of us getting hired yeah see and you don't come across that very often because people are like well they don't want you to shine because if there's only one job offer when they at the end of observership program um they want to be the ones to get it so it's like we end up hurting each other because we're so desperate for that one opportunity okay so let's talk interviews like first your observership interview to get onto the program you had an interview so starting with the interview for the observership i i i'd come into this hospital personally hand delivered my cv and it so happened that they called me the next day and said uh, the director just wants to have a chat with you i think that bit of initiative is quite important if you're thinking about uh, trying to get on to an observership or even a job later on 
just try and whatever uh, i know that it's not easy for everybody to travel but you know let's say if you're living in the city and you've got about 10 different hospitals in your metropolitan area then just go hand out your cvs over there and tell them that if you don't have a job and if you do an observership program i'd be more than happy for you to consider me for that just take what they're getting basically mm. and uh, i got called in the next day i went in and uh, the director was a very lovely lady she just basically asked me about myself asked me to run my through the CV and uh, what sort of uh, what was my area of interest and whatnot and um, what did I expect out of the observership and um, and then she eventually said herself that we ideally try and give an interview to each one of you uh, at the end of this so it's um, it's a it's a good pathway for you to understand the Australian healthcare system. Obviously, mm-hmm. there were no guarantees of a job or anything, but I didn't really get asked any specific questions. Mm. I got asked about my CV, and I'd mentioned in my CV that back in India, I'd done a bit of volunteer work. So she was a bit more interested about that as to what sort of work I did there, what did it entail working, mm. working, working in India, because it's a bit obviously... Um, given that we have a large lower socioeconomic population she just wanted to know what we did as doctors over there yeah so yeah. she was quite interested so she basically asked me to run through my cv and uh, that in itself took us to nearly 40 minutes and mm. she said i'm happy with the conversation we've had uh, i'll consider this as your interview and um, let's get you on to the observership program mm. within the next six months because there's often quite a fair bit of a wait before you can get on. Yeah. Some hospitals have a wait of uh, over an year uh, mm. right now. And uh, so I got one after six months, but thankfully uh, there was some um, there was someone who dropped out for from the cohort before and that's when I got on. Yeah, so you did mention like when you did the observership program at this particular hospital is a bit... Um, ad hoc they probably hadn't set their ways yet now I can definitely tell you that there's an intake at the end of the year for the following year we fill in all the spots and then if anyone shows interest that year they have to wait till the following year so um, there is like for example 16 spots but 40 applicants and mm-hmm. you know not obviously not everyone can get a position um it's funny enough, and we also do ask clinical questions now because we're trying to see if they're work ready. Um, but it's always about the interview and how they shine in that interview. So um, let me tell you, the best interview I had with an observer was somebody who had the least clinical experience. But this girl just, I was like, if there was a job, we should give it to her tomorrow because I have no, um, I have no doubt that she would go in and she would dominate. She would do so well just because she, the way she communicated, and she was had so much insight into her strengths and her weaknesses and into the areas that she knows that she's going to need to focus on. Like she already had a strategy and a plan for how she was going to succeed if she got in, um, got a job, and so just saying that to people out there because you get these cvs and some of them have the most amazing experience on it even these masters in public health and all this stuff but really it's how you come across in the interviews that counts um obviously your clinical question the answer has to have some sort of format to it and um, process the way you answer it but ultimately it is just how you come across when she the director of clinical training asked you what areas you're interested in what did you say out of curiosity well i did mention to her um ironically even back then that uh, i'm thinking maybe psychiatry or pediatrics because those were the only two areas of interest i had mm. and um I think maybe she liked that answer because the hospital that I applied to is always short of people who were interested in psychiatry. The, the reason that I asked is exactly the last sentence you just said. So um, integrity and honesty is very important to come off in an interview. I looked at somebody's CV and they've had all these years of experience in cardiology. And I said, oh, what area are you interested in? Honestly, out of all the interviews... I reckon 80% would say psychiatry to me. They would say an area of need. And I realized like this is a trend. These people are just saying something that they think 
that sets them apart and also they think that oh if you say psychiatry I'm going to give you the job more uh, over somebody else because we need psychiatrists and so I look I'm like but your CV has like three years of just cardio experience in what part you got no psych experience in what part made you decide after three years of cardio you want to be a psychiatrist and I knew you're bullshitting me and I didn't like that and um that really put that applicant at the bottom um because I was like we if you can't develop honesty integrity with me in the interview process then already I'm like I just don't see you being the sort of resident that does shine in the system no absolutely i mean i would i would say to people if if they want to say something for an img which might be very hard to get into not impossible but f- would require a fair bit of work just take a take a surgical an accredited surgical position or or you know just to get on a surgical training program requires you especially in urology it requires you to at, be an unaccredited registrar for five years and a surge RMO for three years. So that's eight years of you being doing no training whatsoever. And then you do five to six years of your accredited training, which is what, 15 years of your life you're trying to be a surgeon. You just be honest. I would say that you know, if, some, if I had surgery as my area of interest, I'd say I absolutely enjoy surgery. And I hope that maybe one day I can get in, even though I know that it's a bit hard for international mm. graduates to, uh, to get onto a training program in a surgical field. But at least I'd like to give it a try and yeah. give my 100%. Yeah. If I don't get through with that, then I do have a bit of an interest in whatever, A, B, yeah. A, B, C. That's a great it's, it's, answer. It's, yeah, it's, it's, um, and it's honest. Like, you mm. know, like if you show your interest in surgery and then you give your next option as psychiatry, it would actually... I mean, you know, you it would actually intrigue the interviewer as well. And, you know, at least they'd ask you why. Or, you know, just don't be absolutely bizarre with your answers. Yeah. Like, and obviously, like, they've been hearing advice from other people. Like, oh, say psychiatry because Australia needs psychiatrists. So they're more likely to give you the position. And then the problem is in the interview, like 35 out of the 40 applicants are saying psychiatry. And I'm like, okay, clearly someone has shared the wrong information here. You know, when I get asked this question, do you know what I say? I I say, look, I haven't completely decided on anything yet. I actually love aspects of emergency medicine and that's what I seem to gravitate to. And I love it because I think it fits with my personality and I say X, Y, Z, what I like about it and why it fits my personality. But I'm not too sure about personal life and juggling a family and how I would do that um, so I'm also thinking about these following things because they're more family friendly but ultimately what my what I want to do is just try all the different departments work in you know each department and then make a decision and everyone's always been like that's perfectly fine and that's what you should do you should get a taste of everything and then make a decision and, and and a lot of the doctors will say yes and you need to choose something that is family friendly if that's what you want as well in your life so i don't come in and go i want to be a pediatrician mm, absolutely you know? i don't need to lie about it and the fact of the matter is my answer gave my gave a bit of personal information about me and it gave my personality and it gave a bit of a longer discussion and you could hear my thought process like, oh, you know, how I was thinking about a training program where if I just said, you know, I'm thinking about doing psychiatry, full stop, four words later, full stop. That's the end of the conversation. No, I, 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 I completely agree with you because when I got asked why I wanted to do, well, I, I got asked why I wanted to do psychiatry in my observership interview and then later on for my job interview as well, I'd given more information when I gave my job interview. But basically, all I'd done was when I got asked why psychiatry, I gave them, like you said, a bit of information about myself. And I was honest. I said, I come from a country, from a third world country, where mental health is a taboo. Heck, it's a mental, uh, it's a taboo here in a first world country. Mm. Forget third world countries, which is so dominated by religion and culture. No offense to any of them. It's it's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, we we tend to think of everything else apart from mental health being a medical issue um, that you it's, it's unspeakable yeah. you can't talk to your own family or friends about it because you get put down for being sad um, and you get called oh, some some appalling things i used to get called a girl because i was emotional and years later i realized i'd be proud to be called a girl a girl goes through so much more than a guy <laughs> ever will and has maybe 2% of the, their emotional resilience i so, always say in my next life i'm coming back as a man <laughs> well, maybe can, maybe we can do swapsies <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> So I I always put that in my answer because that's that's honest. I I have I have worked in a bit of mental health back in India, but uh, it was just such it was that experience was so personal that I can't mm-hmm. fake it. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen that the people that came there, they actually used to be so scared that some of their relatives might find out that they there to see a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that it actually crushed me. And then there were a couple couple of peculiar cases that either I saw there that tickled my fancy and every time I talk about them you cannot lie about these things mm. your face will give it away the yeah. change in your voice your expression the glint in your eye everything will just give it away that this man or this woman's passionate about what they're talking but just as you mentioned if you're undecided you don't have to fake a profession no you don't have to fake instances that never happened in your life just be honest i think that goes such a long way absolutely um it's just like even with clinical questions when they ask you um be honest about it like don't lie your way through it so that's what they're really testing is your honesty and your integrity um, so let's skip to your actual interview at the end of the observership program that was for a job. What was that like? That was a bit more formal than my observership interview. I had a panel of two different uh, interviewees, uh, in- interviewers, sorry. Um, um, both of them were doctors, both of them uh, GPs. One of them was also the clinical director and a GP and the other one was a, sort of a specialized rural GP. And uh, I I had clinical questions, but they were not entirely clinical per se. Like, you know, not stuff like this person's got chest pain. What are you thinking? They were more clinical questions in relation to my CV. So they, this, they basically took it apart. Mm. Sentence by sentence, right? Everything that I've done. They said, all right, you said you've done this in your hospital. Tell us a bit more about that. All right, you've done this in your hospital give us a bit of an example of it there was a lot of conflict resolution uh there was um, so clinical questions based on my cv mm. some some of the my other uh, people from the court did get a couple of uh, standard uh, cluster of uh, questions that you do get in an interview again uh, i would um, at at any point when i don't know anything i would do what i know and i'd just say that beyond this i would require help and even if it is at step 2 of what needs to be done you require help at least be honest about it mm. because you might not shine through the interview but out of a, co- a group of 10 if you're lying your way through it and you just got bullshitting then you're not even on the list yeah whereas if you're honest that right i can do uh, i i would have done this this and this and i think i need a bit of help beyond this you're still at least on the list, which is much better than not being on the list altogether. You're actually a little bit higher on the list because the fact that you knew your limitations and you're like, at this point is where I would get help, but I've done all this other stuff prior. That's where they're like, amazing. And that's the thing IMGs need to understand because that's what's letting them down in these interviews. And I know when I was interviewing for the observership program, we did do the clinical questions. Um, obviously I knew how heartbreaking it was going to be to reject like more than 50% of the interviewers, uh, interviewees because there's only 14 spots. And I actually hated it because I just put myself in their shoes and I know that feeling. I know it personally. But there were some applicants that I was like, I know you'd be good. if we. I know, I, I think I know, like you could get your foot here, um, do the program, I will touch base with you and I'll, I'll tell you how it operates here and I can mold you a little bit that I think you would be good if you got a job with a bit of help. 
But unfortunately, you just have to choose the 14 best people that interviewed. Um, and every time I'd ask a question and they, I could just hear that you're not owning... Yes, and there's nothing wrong in being humble. Humility goes a long way. And I recognize that a lot of um, IMGs have plenty of experience back from where they're from, back at back in their homes. Some of them have decades of experience and uh, leave all of that behind and then decide or uh, restart their life, basically, as an intern. is quite hard and they're rigid and set in their ways. Um and but it's a learned it's a it's a learned behavior if mm. you've learned to be this way then you can learn to be the other way as well it's it's difficult but it's not impossible yeah. so i would say that trying to flaunt your achievements is very different from bragging about yourself yes right? If you've achieved something in life, you talk, of course, if you don't toot your own horn, like a very sensible person told me today, then no one else will. <laughs> was this sensible person me? Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to mention about observership interviews is put in maximum effort to prepare just the same way you would for an actual interview that would land you a job. And the reason I say this is because... I know people think, oh, it's an observership, whatever, like it's not an actual job interview. Um, I won't go all out. I actually had somebody, uh, it was an online interview. I had somebody basically interview, I swear they took me to a basement. Like they were in some sort of weird ass basement and they, like the camera was like down and they were up and there were so weird angles and they were like, oh, just one second, one second, one second. And then they're moving, shuffling things like one second, one second. And I'm like, if you had an interview at a set time, make sure you're available. Make sure you're in a set room. You're ready to go. Your computer is set up. Don't take me into some weird basement. Absolutely. I, and just because it's the observership program, you don't think the stakes are high. But it, I'm telling you that they are high because there's like 50 applicants and only 14 spots. So if you're not treating it professionally... Why would I? Why would we give you a spot? Because I don't think you're going to treat it professionally when you get to the hospital, if that's your attitude in the interview. So, really prepare like it is a job interview. Because this may, like, with if you um, haven't listened to Dr. Faraz's IMG success story, because he did the observership program, which landed him a job, which got him into this hospital that he did his WBA in, and now he's on a psych training program there. So. The observership is where it led him to all his success. So you need to treat it like it could potentially be the stepping stone to your entire career. Absolutely. And it's that that foot in the door that you're, that you're looking for. And like Caroline said, uh, for all intents and purposes, your observership is your job. Treat this like your pathway to a job because if you are... If you are genuine, if you are receptive to what they want from you, if you are passionate about the work that you're doing, there is no way that they're not going to see it. And once they see that there's somebody that interested, who's so keen on learning, who's willing to change their ways, if that's what it's needed for them to adjust into a new healthcare system, and if they're trying to do just do the right thing by the patient who is obviously the number one priority then there is no way that you will not land a job one day or the other you will get a job maybe not in the same hospital it might take you through a convoluted loop but believe me when i say this it will always always come back to you in a good way yeah totally agree final final thoughts um do you think observerships are worth it and do you recommend them? I think so. I definitely believe they are because just as how I'd mentioned in the beginning that there's two ways that they can go, that you either get the job or you don't. But either way, you come out with a huge chunk of experience of the Australian healthcare system that you probably had no idea about before. Yes, it may seem like you've lost a, a bit of money or 
a chunk of money and didn't even get a job but in all fairness none of these observerships actually promise you a job no. they promise you an interview maybe but not a job so don't get disheartened if that doesn't happen because you still have something to put on your cv you still have something to talk about in your next interview and say that this is what i've done this is what i've done and if they ask you why do you think you weren't hired in that interview or why do you think that you weren't um, didn't weren't successful over there then just be honest just say i think i just had a bad day uh, in the interview and uh, maybe that's what uh, it was but uh, or you know if most interviews actually give you feedback on which areas you've lacked in if they don't hire you so always try and get that from uh, where whichever hospital you apply to that's a great suggestion always ask um that if you could get feedback on on the interview like what you didn't do well um and you know they could email that that answer to you yes and then you just build on it and that way if at all a question like that comes up next time then you know that um you can be honest and say this is what had happened and um since then i have done this 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 to correct all my faults and like i said to you before um is something about australians and people taking initiative they just love somebody who tries to take responsibility who owns up to their mistakes or their faults and it basically just humanizes all of us when we admit that we lack in something because that's what we are to err is human so um, i would say just be honest about your replies and uh, work hard don't leave any stone unturned that's that's mm. what i would say for observership and if you get an opportunity 100% do it well thank you so much for um you know giving up your time because i know you're super busy and sharing your wonderful experience to our listeners i'm sure they've taken huge amounts of information from this um and probably just hearing your experience gives them a bit more of a understanding and a strategy so we really really appreciate having you on um I'm glad that I could be here more than happy to and like I said always always good to share information around and help as many IMGs as possible. Yes, thank you. So if you're not already following us on our social media, we have a Facebook and an Instagram, just type in Code You Australia and hit the follow button. More importantly, we have a YouTube channel, Code You Australia, where all these podcasts go to and they tend to go there a bit earlier than the Um, social media platform so if you haven't already subscribed to that channel go to youtube and hit the subscribe button um, i hope you found this super informative and we'll catch you in the next podcast bye bye